Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And he says, I, Paul, am on special assignment for Christ, carrying out God's plan laid out in the message of life by Jesus. I write this to you, Timothy, the son I love so much. All the best from our God and Christ be yours. He's a mentor to Timothy. And so then he talks about things he remembers about their time together. And then he says, that precious memory triggers another, your honest faith. And what a rich faith it is, handed down from your grandmother Lois to your mother Eunice and now to you. And the special gift of ministry you received when I laid hands on you and prayed. Keep that ablaze. God doesn't want us to be shy with his gifts, but bold and loving and sensible. There's this sense of passing things on. Parents play a role. There are rites of passage and laying on hands. We're going to be thinking about all of those things over the next two days together. Um, I hope that you come with questions about how your community can be doing that. Our research has shaped the way I parent and the way I think about ministry, even the way I teach college students. Um, so I hope that for you, with that, that you'll have that experience too as you learn from what we've been doing. So I want to just introduce you a little bit to some of our research team. So um, this is a, per, a picture we took early on. We've had graduate students. We've had people uh, representing five different denominations uh, with professors at different seminaries and universities, um, and then graduate students as well. And we've all grown a lot. You can see I'm right here. This is another picture we took. Um, but I think I grew the most. This is me in the middle. We've had a couple of babies. We've had some people who have gotten married. Um, we've had a lot of life that's happened throughout this. And uh, we've had a great community uh, experience doing this together. So if you were on the research team in any capacity, would you just stand right now? OK, stay standing. Stay standing. If your congregation was somehow involved with the confirmation project, maybe you participated in the study in some way, or you were in one of the congregations we studied, would you stand? Maybe you were and you didn't know it. Yay! <laughs> the rest of you are here to learn from all of these 3,000 congregations we studied. Have a seat. Thanks so much. So throughout the, the two days, um, I've, Rick and I have been directing and kind of leading the ship, but everyone's been on this ship. So um, all of these people have expertise in different areas that you'll learn from as we spend time together. This was our last gathering, and here we added somebody. Um, this is David Brad, who's at Erdman, and the most amazing thing came in the mail on Friday. This came in the mail, which is my new Bagley Bee costume. But another thing also came in the mail, which is our, our book we've been working on. And I'm so excited. Um, one of the women that I teach with on her syllabus, she has a celebration of learning listed. And, um, and then in class, those, those are the exam dates, which I think is so funny. But this, to me, feels like a celebration of learning, where we've been doing this research for five years, and the goal always has been to be in service to the church, to help form the faith of youth and their families as they go through this really significant rite of passage. So the celebration of learning will uh, really happen tonight. I'm so excited about it, and we'll all have a book to, to celebrate with. So 
um, to give you a bit of uh, context for confirmation, it's a rite of passage that most American Protestant teens are going through, just over half, or just under half. So uh, the National Study of Youth and Religion served, it was a big national survey. They studied the generic American youth population and found that 59% of mainline Protestant teenagers and 43% of Christian teenagers nationally indicate that they've been confirmed or baptized as a public affirmation of faith, something that was not infant baptism. So when we're thinking about confirmation, it's something there's, that where there's a significant amount of social pressure to do it. There's an expectation that that's going to happen um, in a lot of communities. Our study also, when we were thinking about confirmation, came out of a study that was done in the 1990s called um, from the research or the search institute called Effective Christian Education. Have anyone, uh, maybe some of you have heard of this? Um, and they noticed a really disturbing trend that kind of gave name to some of the things that people kind of knew were happening intuitively. So I'm just going to read that paragraph to you. They found that participation in formal Christian education declines with age, just generally. For most of the denominations, percentages of participation decline from the elementary grades up into adulthood. The two denominations, the ELCA and the UCC, with strong emphasis on thorough study and preparation for confirmation, retain their levels of participation of youth in grades 7 through 9. In fact, in the ELCA, they increase them. This is like great news, right? However... For both of those denominations, percentages of participation for youth in grades 10 through 12, as well as those for adults, drop well below the participation rates of all other denominations. So this is really disturbing. Confirmation is supposed to be a moment when people are integrated into the community, uh, welcomed into the body of Christ, it, but it's, they're leaving. And so when we did our first very early round of interviews and research, uh, we called people who were in ministry and said, what are your big challenges? And they said, well, it's kind of like the graduation effect is happening, right? Raise your hand if you've seen this happening. Ah! So as we went and did research, we saw some churches said, well, if that's what happen is happening, we're just not going to do confirmation anymore. Why do it? So as we went out and visited different camps and congregations, we found that there were a number of equivalent ministries or equivalent practices. And you'll hear about some of those. Sometimes they totally dropped the language because it just didn't mean anything. Um, or in one case, a college campus ministry, uh, somebody's doing confirmation with college-age students. They call it the way, the union way. And basically, they're like, sneakily having all these college students go through confirmation. And they don't just do it once, they do it every year. It's like the most amazing, mind-blowing thing. You can read about also all of the camps and congregations that we visited on our website. We wrote them up as portraits. So if there's one that I mentioned or you hear mentioned, you can go and read about that um, in our portrait gallery is what it's called. So portraits of all these congregations. Another phenomenon that's happening right now, of course, is the rise of the nuns, which all of us know what that means, but I always love it when somebody thinks it's like priests and nuns, <laughs> there's an influx of nuns. Um, but Pew Research has shown, and this is just something that's a big challenge in our society, it's also happening in, um, in uh, Britain as well, 
is that younger Americans are more likely to be unaffiliated or check the box none. So what this graph shows is the percentage of each generation who identify their religion as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. So this is the silent generation, the boomers, Generation X, older millennials, and then younger millennials. This is concerning because people are spending more time in young adulthood or emerging adulthood. Uh, it's taking longer for them to get to their adult years, uh, which then we all hope is when they come back to church. So this seems like a really unique moment for confirmation. If, um, and maybe uh, perhaps an ecclesial opportunity. So if young adults are increasingly nuns and confirmation or equivalent ministries is our last best chance at forming the faith of youth before they launch into young adulthood, we must consider how we're forming the faith of youth while they're still present in the body of Christ so that they might keep faith ablaze like Timothy. We want to be able to see our youth later and say, oh, I thank God every time I think of you and I see the faith that was handed on to you. That's our hope for every youth that comes through our, our congregational life. So in the midst of this, enter the Confirmation Project. So I want to tell you a little bit about our research and what we were trying to accomplish. All of our research focused on a primary research question, and then we had primary and secondary objectives, three boxes of which can be checked at this conference. I love checking checklists, and so this is really satisfying to me. Our main question was, what is the state of confirmation and equivalent practices within five Protestant denominations that practice infant baptism? We didn't study everybody. It wasn't a national study with all youth, like the National Study of Youth and Religion. It focused on the AME denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, the United Methodist Church, the ELCA, the PCUSA, and the Episcopal Church. So that's who we studied. Our primary objectives were to do empirical research, to interpret and analyze those, and then to disseminate those. Part of that dissemination began really early on. We wanted to share our research early, so we've been doing that through the website. We also shared that information with publishers, like the PCUSA that I'm a part of, and they were able to develop curriculum based on our findings. So you can find some of those next door and look at what was developed. Um, Part of that is also through the book. We're disseminating that. And then having this conference, we also had one called Rethinking Confirmation at Luther Seminary, where we had a really wonderful gathering as well. Um, and then some of our secondary objectives were to offer new think theological thinking about confirmation. One of our website or our, our workshops will be on thinking theologically um, about um, confirmation. And we also wanted to serve as a catalyst for discussion. Hopefully, we've made some space during this conference for table discussions that will happen later tonight for you to think really a little bit more deeply about some of the topics, maybe spark some new ideas for you. Um, and then uh, provide resources for effective pedagogical approaches. You'll come up with some of those as you think of this, uh, engage, think about your ministry and how it interacts with the research that you see that we're going to be sharing. So some of what I share with you, you'll look at it and you'll be like, that's totally us. And uh, this totally is exactly my church. And some of it you'll say, wow, we're really weird. Or we're the exception. Or we're the tiniest bar in the bar chart that I show. Um, and that's one of the things we found when we looked across the United States. A lot of people are doing confirmation. And they're using the same word, but they're doing totally different things. 
So one of the best resources while you're here is to talk with other people and say, we had this challenge or this unique situation or this demographic. How are you engaging that group? Is anyone here doing the same thing I'm doing or have the same challenges? And you'll hear a lot of different stories here. So I want to give you a bit of the landscape of who we studied in the very, the biggest, broadest strokes. And you'll get more details later. So 677 people took our survey. The way we distributed it was through contact lists that the denominations keep. So each church received an email that they then forwarded to each of the um, people in their congregation that was involved with confirmation. So the, we had the highest number of responses from clergy, then students, the youth who were involved, and then other people involved in the ministry. Um, and a lot of these categories overlapped some. So you might be a parent who leads the confirmation class that your kid is involved in. So that was one of the things uh, we saw in our study as well, is a lot of people have their own kid in confirmation. Anybody right now fall into that category? All right, we have a number of you. Our, uh, the group we, uh, this is who responded. There were 3,064 congregations spread throughout the country, but really concentrated in the Midwest and the South. Um, less so in the West, where I live, the better Washington. I liked that. Uh, and some up here in the Northeast. And this kind of makes sense when you think about um, just what we know about congregational trends and these denominations where they're clustered. I want to show you a bit about the demographic breakdown according to race. These are the different denominations, and you'll see that four that we studied are predominantly white. This is the leaders, the racial profile of the leaders, and one is predominantly black. I'm going to show you then the parents and then the kids. Okay, so what do you think? Think in your mind, what might change with our kids that's different than our leaders and parents, okay? So these are the leaders. These are the parents. And then these are the youth. What do you notice? The youth are much more racially diverse. One of the things... Uh, Megan noted was this course I taught called Culturally Responsive Teaching. One of the things that we is happening to us, some of us really want it, some of us don't know what to do about it, is that our congregations are becoming more racially diverse because our kids are becoming more racially diverse. That's cool. I think that's awesome. But we need to start thinking about what that means if a kid in a congregation is the only one. Um, I'm going to share a little bit more about how we looked at race and gender and how they factor into um, feelings around believing, belonging, and behaving in the last lecture for the time when we're together. But that's something we can just start to talk about by noticing what is the demographic makeup of the people in your congregation, but then also in the groups that we studied. So the next slide is a fun one. I want you to hold up on, ten, on your 10 fingers. What's your guess for the average size of a confirmation class in the United States? So typical number of kids. It's less than 10. Hold it up high. Oh, these are some really good. Some of you are going to be celebrating. <laughs> All right. This looks confusing, but 
Here's the denominations. Here are the different groups and the median number. So if you went to a, a, a class, uh, a typical class, the, the number that you would most likely see would be six. The average number is if you take all of the youth. So there are a couple churches. There's one in Leewood, Kansas, Church of the Resurrection. They have 200 kids going through confirmation. They have a part-time person on their staff that just does confirmation. They publish their own curriculum in two workbooks, one for parents with all the answers and one just for the kids. It's awesome. It's like this whole huge confirmation machine. So they skew this number high along with a few other programs. <laughs> but um, six is the, the median number. And there were also a number of congregations that we studied that only had one kid. And they had one kid about every 10 years or so. That was not atypical, that a lot of congregations are saying, what does it mean to offer confirmation or to confirm the faith of a youth when they're just like our one kid in our congregation of 50? So on our website, we have a couple of different portraits of congregations who are doing that really well in really creative ways. And they name what is really challenging about that as well. There's some really beautiful things that happen when you have a really small group. And then there's some weird things that happen. And that's all right. Everyone wants to be here. Call, tell them to call in. Tell everybody to call in. <laughs> OK, what do you think is the typical age for the beginning of confirmation? Shout it out. Oh, you guys should have done the research project. One of my mentors, Kendadine, says research just proves to everybody and gives them evidence for everything everyone already knows. So <laughs> that is the typical starting age. What's really interesting about this to me, though, is that anybody put anything down here for the numbers ages 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. What is happening there? Well, we visited camps and congregations, and some of the churches we found, they said um, there's a church at, called Mount Olympus in Salt Lake City, uh, where my husband happens to be from. And they said, you know, confirmation in a Mormon context really doesn't mean a lot. So we just got rid of it. And we think about our whole educational ministry as building toward affirming your faith. And for them, they have a lot of adult converts. So they were able to open it up and say, if you want to go through this process and profess your faith publicly, you don't, it's not for 12-year-olds. It's just for whoever. And so a lot of youth are a lot going along that journey. And so their curriculum looks like you participate in different moments in the life of the congregation. Some of it's Sunday school. Some of it is a big mission trip or a service trip. And they're intergenerational. It's really creative and, and amazing. And basically, it was because they said, eh. Confirmation doesn't make any sense here. We're getting rid of it, which um, threw the whole, a few people into a bit of a tizzy. And Jamie White, who's the, the um, woman in charge of their youth ministry program, said she got a lot of pushback, but she had a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings. She got a team of people together. They bought everything they could on confirmation. And for a year, they just said, what is this really supposed to be about? What in the Bible, what scriptures can inform what we're doing? And then they built something different based on that. And it's been amazing to see how that. Um, so then I said, did you put five down? Are you one of those? She said, yeah. And I was like, OK, that makes more sense. But there might be different reasons why people are saying, we start confirmation at this age um, when they think about the life um, building faith or cultivating faith among their popu your population in church. One of the things that we asked 
we heard in our really early um, preliminary phone interviews with people was that they felt like they were teaching a mixed group of kids. And by mixed, I mean some were like, you know, the cradle, in the crib room, they've gone to church their whole life, kids, and they know every Bible story. And then you have their best friend who came with them for confirmation, who's like, Moses was crucified, and when he came out, there was an Easter egg hunt. And they're like, how do I teach this mixed group? So we asked, how many people did you know before confirmation began that are in the confirmation program? So um, the dark blue are people who knew half or more, so about half, more than half, and this is almost all of them. So 70% knew almost all of them. And then there are a few down here who knew none or maybe less than half. So we were trying to understand, how would you know like not one single kid? Like, we're going to offer confirmation. I wonder who will show up. Um, and what actually seems to be happening is there are a lot of people, and this actually happened to me when I was in ministry. They said, oh, we're going to do confirmation this year. And I'm like, OK. I'm new in this job. And so that's who this population is here. You're new to a church, and you're supposed to offer something that integrates these people into a congregation when you yourself are just trying to integrate yourself into the congregation. Um, but that is one of the challenges that um, I would encourage you to talk to other people about. How do you navigate that when um, you have like the best friend who comes? Um, or one story I heard, which I thought was really crazy was that there was a private Christian school that required youth to go through confirmation before they joined, they could go to this school, which was like a mixed bag for the local church because they had all these youth who would come in for confirmation and then were never part of the congregation, were never seen again. And so they asked themselves, okay, well, what, what's our role in this community? What's our relationship with this school? How do we want to offer something that feels like it has a lot of integrity to who we are and um, builds up the body of Christ? You know, what's our responsibility here? And so they got in touch with the school. They talked a lot with the parents. And they rethought the model of what they were doing. Another thing we asked about is when you get together, um, or how long is your confirmation program, the duration of the whole thing? So, um, so, so who do you think is down here? Who are the Presbyterians in the room? <laughs> What's up, right? Lent, that's a good time. Confirm them on Easter, maybe on Pentecost. Who do you think's up here? Lutherans. Lutherans. How, okay, raise your hand if you're Lutheran. You guys can't get enough of a good thing. They, they're like, I think, I think this happened after the Search Institute study came out. They said, everyone's leaving after confirmation? Let's just make it longer, right? I mean, seriously, I, I think that that actually happened. So um, one of the things, when we think about um, our, our church calendar, um, the reality is um, you know, people go on vacation during the summers. We have different youth ministry programs that um, happen during the summer. Um, sometimes it's really a lot easier to just coordinate things along with the school calendar rather than the church calendar, the church year. Um, there are a lot of good reasons why people are have, offering confirmation programs that last a little bit of time or a long period of time because they're in this bigger universe of ministry that's happening. Um, one analogy that somebody on our team came up with was 
that confirmation is kind of like one organ among many. And when they're all functioning in a healthy way together, they mutually reinforce each other. One of the not so profound findings of this study was that kids with high levels of faith, a confirmation didn't really have a huge effect on them. It just kind of like reinforced everything they were already doing. We actually had Robert Westnow from Princeton University come over and look at our data with us. And we're all sitting there like, we hope we can, he thinks it's good. Like he's, he's like, a, we're super fans of, at least I am, of Bob Westnow. And um, he said, so you studied the churchy church kids, huh? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, that's who we studied. And he's like, okay. But um, <laughs> we're like, that's who we're into, the, church, the super church kids. Um, but actually, it's worthwhile to think about what is the most deepening, intensifying, the, the most igniting thing that we do for our kids, um, for our youth, our 12-year-olds or the 5-year-olds? Uh, what intensifies people's faith? What helps them to grow? Are we giving them worthy challenges, something that's really going to compel and convict them to be more like Jesus? That isn't just like, oh, I completed that, check, give me my iPad so I can graduate out of church. Um, I think that's what we're really all trying to make this about is something much more. Also, there are people whose uh, programs don't really fit into this model well, where they use three retreats over the course of a year. Or they have one kid, so they go to a confirmation camp with a lot of other uh, people. Um, one church, one, two church ministries, um, one of our researchers visited was in Lake Tahoe. Great idea. Brilliant. I, I want to go to that confirmation program. But they did it together over a four-day long retreat. So it was a lot of hours, but all happened together at the same kind of in one big block. Um, they did that because uh, the two women were friends from seminary, and it was a great way for them to reconnect, but also share the planning, and also help introduce youth to the Christian community that's broader and beyond the walls of their church. So we collected data that looks like this in the form of a graph and is very statistically kind of oriented. And then we also gathered research uh, in a method that's called portraiture. Uh, or we used the method of portraiture to visit congregations. So we visited these five denominations. You can see the numbers of how many places we visited um, and the average size of these. So some were really small, some were really, really big. Uh, our definition, our, how we made the decision as to where we went was not like, are they the biggest, best, flashiest, shiniest, most successful program? But it was... Um, uh, of a lot of conversations that we had. Who are doing really interesting things? Who's working with populations who are more vulnerable than other populations? Um, what are you seeing that is really inspiring um, other people in the area? Who's doing tradition really, really well? Who's integrating parents in a creative way or in a way that their faith is being formed as well? So that's how we chose where we go. And we talked with uh, leaders in the denominations and also our own contacts. And we initially did we used all this like photo language, so we did snapshots of a bunch of congregations. And then as a larger group, we said, how can we choose congregations to visit that will represent a lot of different things that we're interested in learning about? So that's how we chose who we visited. And then um, the method of portraiture, this is a painting by Pablo Picasso. It's called Girl Before a Mirror. And the idea was we wanted to write them up. We, used, we took pictures wherever we went. Our researchers did, and we wrote it up in a way that was beautiful and paid attention to things that were good and inspiring. 
And, um, and then we held it up to them like a mirror and said, your congregation is like this. We can included a metaphor in that. And they um, got to read it and edit it. They told us, oh, you got this detail wrong, or oh, you should definitely include this, or oh, this was left out. And so we edited it based on what they told us, and then we shared those. So they were involved in the making of these portraits. There's also things that are critical about the congregations in there. We didn't go in trying to say, what's wrong with you? But I'm sure all of you, are like me, I'm the first one to be like, I can tell you everything that's wrong here, and all of our challenges, and all the hard things. So that's in these as well. But our researchers went in for what, looking for what was really beautiful and good that was happening. So um, we used a mixed methods approach to gather information. So when we did that, that means we gathered this type of information. So what teaching methods do you use? And then the people could select all of the different things, as many as they wanted. Group discussions are the most common, group Bible study reading. But then there were some really interesting things like using YouTube or video clips. Um, so the way our research um, worked really well doing this kind of these site visits as well as this big national study is that we could look at things like catechism, the use of catechisms or YouTube videos in um, really up close. So one church in Birmingham, Michigan, uses what's called a flipped classroom. Has anyone heard of this? Basically, all the learning happens away from the group. And when you come together in the group, it's really to build relationships. It's more social. Um, they have an opening and a closing event. But then the youth meet with a mentor on their own, on their own time, whenever they want to, because Amy, the pastor there, said, I don't want to compete with soccer anymore. I, I believe that you can be a soccer player and a Christian. I just don't think we can, I think we can work through this. So she made these videos that are about 17 to 20 minutes long. She teaches on them, and then she'll say, push pause and answer this question or describe this thing. And you know what? You can go to their website and use her videos if you want to. It's like open source, right? So it's just on a, on a menu there. Um, but it's available for anyone to use. And um, that's one way they're using YouTube, is they're just creating these videos. And then for her, once she's put the effort in for that initial group, they can keep using the same ones. And running confirmation becomes a lot easier. At First AME Church in Las Vegas, Nevada, the pastor, Ralph Williamson, has uh, kind of gone back to a more traditional approach to having a catechism, using the catechism and a very formal curriculum. And it's really meaningful there for the youth. He said, you know, there's a lack of theological knowledge and we need to go through some really, um, you know, specific teachings and doctrines to help youth articulate what they believe in a culture that's really aggressively trying to tell them who they are, um, which might not be in line with the gospel. <clears throat> Some other congregations that we visited, um, uh, this is the way, the Union Way in Dallas, Texas that I mentioned, where they have, in a sneaky way, this is, I tell about this congregation everywhere I go, um, but they have their college-age students basically going through confirmation every year. It's a UMC ministry, and so every year they get, um, they invite anyone, they'll say, who wants to participate in the way this year? Come to this meeting, and they get a bento box, it's a bento box where it has little compartments. And they say he invites them to commit to fill the box 
to feed their God hunger for the year. So they're going to commit to reading scripture in some type of way. They're going to commit to participating in a worshiping community in some kind of way. They're going to have a mentor who they're going to tell about their bento box who will check in on them. And at the end of that year, they're going to report back and share their faith when the clock starts again and they invite the, the people to join the way the following year. So they're doing their statement of faith. Presbyterians love to have a written statement of faith at the end of confirmation. Um, no, other people don't do that as much, but none of us had any idea until we did this project. Ah! Um, but that's their way of giving people an opportunity to share. How did you grow spiritually this year? Uh, and it's really profound, the groups that they've attracted in this coffee shop ministry. Another thing we looked at in, uh, is parental involvement and support. So in Loveland, Colorado, the parents, um, what we found in our study was if parents weren't invited to be involved in a way that was more meaningful than like bring pizza on Thursdays, uh, they kind of wondered about that. It was like they wanted to participate a bit more. Also, it's a really vulnerable moment for, for parents. Confirmation is a little bit like sexual education. They really want to know what their kids are learning about. They don't necessarily want to be the one who's teaching them about it. And they're really curious to know what it is exactly that they're learning. Um, and so it also is a moment where their kid might show up to confirmation and be the heretic in the class. Or they might show up, do all of confirmation, and then at the end of it say, I'm, I don't want to do this. And we on our research team know that from firsthand experience because it's our kids who were like the biggest heretics or the ones who were like, I'm not doing this at the end. Um, but the, the beautiful thing we saw happening was that uh, all these kids, it's a much bigger, confirmation's usually part of a much bigger ecology of ministries that are happening. So in, um, at Zion Lutheran Church, the parents attend and participate with youth. Sometimes they're in a small group with their parents. Sometimes they're separated. And then they get to see their parent learning um, together with them. It's very high commitment. And people are showing up and doing it. And it, uh, the leaders of that congregation um, the, found that parents really want to have excuses to spend time with their teenage kids who are starting to want to spend time away from them. And this was a great opportunity to build everyone's faith together. Um, as I already mentioned, Church of the Resurrection, they give parents the answers. They're like, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Maybe you don't know anything about that. Here's a book. You can look it up. And then when your kid comes home, you can ask them about it. That's a big thing right now in preschool education. I have a six, four, and two-year-old, and they take all these pictures of my kids so I know what they do during the day. And then they send home suggestion questions, like ask your kid about what was in the water table today or the sensory bin. So I'm like, did you play with you know, pieces of rubber and you know, Tonka trucks in the sensory bin? And my son Paul's like, no. And I'm like, I saw a picture of you. <laughs> I know you did this, so, and that gives parents a way, a similar type of thing, to do with their kids with confirmation. Like, you learned about the Holy Spirit. What do you think about that? Um, it gives them a, a way to talk to their kids. We also learned a lot about camps and conferences, and I'm going to let you learn from Jacob. Um, he's doing a workshop today, and I know there's actually a class it's the PTS right now um, that is doing that. So I want to show you one last thing, and I'm going to be done. Woo, I had more slides. I had too many. 
I want to show you how this has affected my life. So con basically, uh, church, uh, having your kids involved in church, one of the biggest indicators we found of, as far as like predicting the faith of um, the next generation of kids is faith in the home. And that's what all the studies are showing. Parents, are you practicing your faith? Are you doing it with your kids? So this is my congregation. I want to show you a picture of my family. This is my family. This is the, one of the only pictures I have from the past year of all five of us, because it is very difficult to get everyone in a picture. And I want to show you where we sit. We sit in the very front row. And it is um, a beautiful thing the way our congregation has said, yes, kids belong up here. Um, like, you're part of us. They take piano lessons right here. Um, I want them to be immersed in the life of a church where people know their name, where they have mentors, um, where this is a place that feels comfortable to them, um, where they wouldn't know their identity other than being there. Um, I'm going to end. We'll all be having more conversations. Hopefully this framed for you a really big, wide perspective and has sparked some curiosity for um, the events that will follow. So. Thanks for being here. It's going to be so fun.